Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Derek Bilsma. Derek is Executive Director, Partner and Senior Counselor at the nationally renowned Millennium Counseling Center in Chicago. He oversees their innovative intensive treatment program as well as handling an individual caseload with specialities in addiction and treatment of co-occurring disorders within the clinical mental health field. Prior to his work in the mental health space, Derek was a D1 college soccer player, going on to play professionally for a number of years after graduation. Derek then took that competitive spirit and applied it to business, building and owning multiple successful recruiting firms. When the time was right, Derek then returned to education in his mid-30s to gain his master's in mental health counseling before starting as an intern at the group practice he now owns and runs. In this conversation, we explore Derek's career journey from professional support and into the world of mental health as well as exploring how to take an athlete's mindset and apply it to the business world and how the lessons learned in sport can be applied to a successful sales career. We also dig into some of the common mental health struggles that athletes commonly experience and what it's like to feel as though you have no one you can talk to when you are performing at the highest level. Derek is an incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guy with a wealth of experience in incredibly diverse areas and this conversation really showed that depth of understanding. This conversation is full of transferable information and I was fascinated by the parallels that could be drawn between the world of professional sport and the world as a whole. So grab a pen and paper as ever and enjoy. Good morning, Derek. Slash good, good morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on. This is, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to um, well, all week um, since Eric kindly made the introduction via the ones of LinkedIn and social media again. Um, just before we were, before we hit record, we were talking about your transition from professional soccer into business. Um, and the multiple ventures that you were involved in there. Could you just tell me a little about the experience that you had with that transition? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I got, I, I actually decided I wasn't going to continue play soccer and I kind of went out to get my first job and I ended up getting a sales job with a staffing and recruiting company. And uh, I kind of moved up through the ranks there and I was a young guy, I was 25 and, uh, you know, was pretty aggressive and wasn't afraid to hear people say no. So I did pretty well on the sales side and ended up taking a bigger job, which moved me from Portland to Chicago. Uh, when I came to Chicago, I transfer, uh, transitioned to a more professional services firm, a company called Robert Half. And at Robert Half, I ended up doing pretty well and, and helping them grow a few divisions. And after having been there uh, for a, you know, a couple of years, there was a couple of guys that I met there that we uh, thought it'd be a good idea to start our own company. So uh, as I mentioned, I probably wasn't ready to do that. I really didn't know enough about running a company. I just figured if I could make a big company, a lot of money, then I could make my small company a lot more money. Mm. Um, but there's the, uh, you know, the thing about owning a business is, is that it's a lot more complicated 
than uh, than just producing, right? There's so many other little pieces to it. You've got to do the accounting and be legally and, you know, all the types of things that go into running a company. And we really didn't know how to do that. So the, uh, the first company we started uh, was, it had the potential to be successful, but we were supposed to get some funding, which we didn't get and some things happened. And so eventually one of our partners left and myself and one of my original partners broke off. And then we started another company uh, that was uh, primarily in the legal field. So we were doing legal recruiting. So for attorneys and paralegals and things like that. Uh, and that one was fine. It kind of went, it went okay. It, you know, we, we made some money and, and were able to enjoy our lives, but it was never, uh, it never really got to that next level. Mm-hmm. And um, so after that, I uh, was introduced to a woman who was across the country and we started a company that actually was recruiters for recruiters. So we recruited staffing people and it's now a really big business. Um, but at the time there weren't many people who did it. And so we actually had a interesting business plan where we employed a lot of, uh, a lot of people who had gone home, had kind of retired to go and raise kids and things like that. Um, but were really high level recruiters. And so what we did is we were one of the first people to start working out of our houses uh, we, uh, did a lot of Blackberry work, um, back when Blackberries were big and, um, and that was pretty successful. So we did pretty well with that. Um, as I was doing that, I started getting involved in more volunteer work, working with people, mental health, uh, on the mental health side and also substance abuse, people in recovery from drugs and alcohol, and then also people kind of working through mental health issues and was doing it all volunteer. And my wife at the time, you know, kind of saw what was going on and was watching me on a day-to-day basis and realizing that I was much more excited to uh, do the volunteer stuff than I was to actually run my business. And so after we had had some success and we could financially make it make sense, um, you know, she kind of encouraged me uh, to go back to school and get my master's in clinical mental health counseling. And so I did that in my, you know, mid to late thirties, went back, went to school uh, and, uh, and then, kind of got into the, the area that I'm in now. That's fantastic. What was the transition like from professional soccer into the business world? As in, did you find that there was, um, did you experience any sense of loss at all in terms of making the transition from one direction that your life is going, whereby professional soccer is obviously very, very different to the business world? What was that transition like for you? Yeah, I think that uh, playing college soccer was a really great experience. I think the teammates were really close. And uh, and then I, I went to, you know, play professionally and went in to, to Milwaukee and Wisconsin and, and had a really good experience there. I think that when I transferred to Portland, when I switched teams and went out to Portland, it was a much different environment than I was used to in Milwaukee. The Milwaukee team was run kind of as a first-class organization and Portland was a newer team and they were kind of feeling their way out. And so I think by the end of that season, I, I didn't love it like I used to. I didn't, you know, I still love the sport, but I didn't love, you know, doing it as a profession. I think I had uh, lost a little bit of my passion for it and, and it wasn't quite as fun as it was before. And so I think I was ready to make that transition when I did that. Now, if I look back, I, I maybe wish I would have, you know, as, as I look back on things, I probably didn't realize how good I had it, um, that people were paying me to run around and, and kick a ball and, and stay in shape. But um, so I think that the transition was tough from a standpoint of is that's what I had been concentrating on for years. I'd been concentrating on athletics and school. And um, but I think that it, from a transition standpoint into a sales job, 
that was actually a pretty easy transition um, because you kind of had to be competitive. You had to be fearless. Uh, I had always done pretty well in school, so I was relatively smart. And, uh, and so I think that you combine all those things and you can do pretty well on the sales side. And so that kind of switching from, from athletics to sales was not as hard. Um, but, you know, missing the soccer and things like that was certainly something that for the first couple of years, I, you know, had second guessed and wondered if I should be doing that. And, um, you know, I was young still when I stopped playing. So, or at least when I stopped playing professionally. So that was, uh, um, at times I look back and wish I would have played longer, but at the time I was ready to make that switch. Mm, so right decision made at the right time for the right reasons. <laughs> In terms of arriving at that conclusion that, um, maybe it was time to, to move on to the next thing. Um, you mentioned that in Portland, you, you were no longer quite as enamored with the game as or enamored with, kind of the whole sports it were, but still in love with the game. What was your thought process like at that time? Like, was there a moment where you kind of realized that this part of your journey was coming to an end or was it more, uh, more kind of a sudden realization? Yeah, I think back then, uh, I'm a little more calculated these days, but I think back then I kind of, uh, was just kind of did what felt right at the time. And so it was, I don't think it was very well planned out or thought out. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, certainly you're, you're not going to the, the type of money that we made in, in, in that, in that league and stuff was not overwhelming. And so it was, there's an opportunity to go and kind of start my, you know, regular career. I didn't, I never thought I was going to be playing in Europe or anything like that. It was just kind of an opportunity that came up after college and I took it. Um, and, uh, I had one of the pro teams in the Milwaukee area had seen me play and drafted me to play indoor actually, which I ended up only playing for a little bit and then moved outdoor. But, um, so yeah, I would say that it was probably more instinct than anything else. I, I'm not sure that it was overly well thought out and kind of the type of person I was at that time, I was pretty spontaneous and, mm -hmm. and really trusted my instinct quite a bit. And, uh, and kind of had the idea that if I thought it would be the right thing, then I'm sure I was correct, but that's kind of how young people are, you know, you feel kind of invincible and, um, feel like, you know, the best thing for you. And, but it turned out well, but, uh, you know, I'm, I wish I could say that it was more of a, uh, a well-conceived plan, but it really wasn't. I think it was just kind of, I just decided to switch gears and, um, and like I said, it, it worked out fine. The, the, the career path was good, but, um, yeah, it, it, it was just kind of, kind of came about <laughs> mm. so the moments were, um, that you mentioned whereby maybe you were second guessing yourself um whether it was the right thing to do whether you'd made the right choice in terms of the direction that you were taking how did you manage those moments um was there moments where you felt like you wanted to go back or was it always a case of like i've made this decision i'm going to keep walking this and then make it work yeah, I think I definitely had some doubts and there was a couple of times where I got back in shape again and were, you know, was thinking about different ways that I might be able to play. Um, you know, there was a number of different professional leagues in the US at that time. They had indoor and they had outdoor and um and I also had this idea that I could be a uh a kicker for football. Um, one of the things that I had was I, I'm, I'm, you know, six to 210 pounds. I was always a big guy and, uh, could kick a ball really hard. And, um, so if there's any regret that I have over that, uh, it's more so that I never tried to go and kick in the NFL, um, because I could really hit a ball. Well, now I hadn't been a kicker. I had gone out and kicked footballs and been able to, you know, hit it far. And, and, you know, I think I could have had some success at that, but certainly as a guy who never played football and didn't play college or anything like that, I think it was more of a dream than maybe it could have been a reality, but, 
that was probably more what I had second doubts about that I didn't try to do that at some level um, more so than necessarily thinking I wanted to go back to soccer and, and play that. Mm-hmm. I think that it was just uh, the way that I worked in those days was I kind of wanted to take every adventure I could and, and get the most out of life and just kind of live not very thinking too much about the future and, and just kind of taking what came next. And that's kind of how I operated there for several years. And so, yes, I missed it. Yes, I second-guessed on it, but I never got serious about trying to come back and continue playing. Mm. So in terms of the, the crossover then, the, the mindset that you have, um, one, I would assume that you had as an athlete, were, were there parts of that mindset that you found to be both beneficial and somewhat detrimental when you transitioned into the business world? Yeah, I think that the, I, I would say that they were mostly beneficial. I think that I knew how to be a team player. Uh, I knew how to work really hard. You know, that's one of the main things I saw is, is that, you know, I thought everybody just worked this hard. And, and so when I got into the business world, I realized that everybody doesn't work that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was, I think that that idea that, you know, you keep trying to improve and get better until you get to where you want to be, which ultimately is probably, you never get there. Um, you know, that definitely was very helpful for me in the business world. And I think that it was, you know, I was a pretty driven guy. I think one thing that was interesting, I guess, about me is I wasn't really driven by money. Money wasn't like one of the things that I cared that much about. I was, you know, I knew how to live pretty simply. I had been a college guy and knew how to live like that. And so I think it was more about the competitiveness. I, 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 I wanted to win more than I wanted to make money. And, uh, and that was fun for me. So it was just like another game, you know, especially in the sales world where I was, uh, you know, every time you had success in business, that was just like winning a competition. And so I was driven by that and I loved it for years. I, I really loved that, that drive that came from that. And like I said, the team, the team work and playing part as a team and things like that, you, you know, in all the sports I played, you always had to do that. And so I think that fit in well in the business culture uh, to understand that the whole thing was bigger than me. And, uh, you know, I was just a piece of it. And so I could, you know, I could contribute, but at the end of the day, we had to, you know, we had to work as a team and do well together for us to have success. Mm, fantastic. That idea that you are, the sum of the parts is greater than the individual. Mm-hmm. So right. The transition then you, um, as you, you had your success with your, with the third business, um, and then getting involved with it, with those volunteer organizations what was the impetus for getting involved with those things was it a case of like you felt that okay now that I've had some business success I'm in a position where I'm able to kind of give back allow people to learn from my experience or was there something else that kind of drove that yeah I think it was a combination of things one is that my dad was a sociology professor my mom was a psychotherapist in private practice and so I had been kind of it was kind of strange for my family that I went into business my sister's an oncology nurse uh, everybody had been in kind of these different helping uh, professions. And then I went and played sports and was a business guy. And so it was already kind of strange that I did that. I was kind of the black sheep for, mm-hmm. you know, not going into that world. And I grew up around parents who were constantly helping people and taking homeless people out to eat. And, you know, that's kind of just the environment that I grew up in. Uh, so I think once I saw that there was an opportunity where I might be able to use some of the things I had learned, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had been around the world of recovery and and things like that when it comes to drugs and alcohol and saw, you know, kind of different lives get uh, get messed up and then other lives get better through recovery and and working through that. And so I think I found that attractive that 
you know, I always believe that people can change and, uh, and that, uh, you know, it's that we're not just whoever we are. And, uh, and I've continued to believe that if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing what I do. Um, but I think just the, you know, the, the, the chance that somehow me being there to help somebody could help them get on the right path. Uh, I enjoyed that and I felt good about that. And, you know, I felt like I had some insights that would be helpful, uh, along that line. So that kind of is what drove me for that. Mm. So you mentioned that your, um, your wife was quite important in terms of pushing you to, to go back to school and that, um, what was that decision-making process like in terms of like, okay, I'm now happy or successful. This is something that I'm kind of obviously being drawn towards the people that I love around me can see this. What was the, what were those conversations like and how did you kind of arrive that actually, yeah, this is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. Well, that one was much more thought out. Uh, that, that was, uh, that was very well planned. You know, I was, it, one of the things that happened is, is when I started talking about maybe going back to school, most of the people told me I couldn't do it. Most of the people said, oh, you're too old. You're already into your career. You know, you're in your 30s or late 30s, mid, mid to late 30s. And um, so as soon as people started telling me I couldn't do it, it made me want to do it even more. Yep. Um, but the reality is, is that I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for my wife pushing me on that because she noticed something. She saw where my passion was and she allowed me to make that decision, which was a, a, you know, it was a scary financial position. You go from making good money to spending, you know, to paying for school. And, uh, and I was fortunate because when I was in grad school, I actually worked as a consultant for another staffing business. And then I also coached uh, club soccer, which I got paid very well to do. Uh, so I ended up making it work on both sides, but uh, realistically, you know, without my wife's encouragement and, uh, I probably would have been too scared to try to do it, especially with everybody telling me I couldn't do it. But, you know, she noticed something and said, look, this is where you're, this is what your calling is and you need to go. And she was very supportive and, and made it work for us from a financial standpoint. And, um, so I give her, you know, all the credit for me making that transition. Cause I, 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 especially after I had some success in the business world, that's hard to give up. You know, you, you don't, once you're doing well, finally, then you don't want to give that up. And so it's a tough decision, but it was, you know, one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life mm-hmm. and, um, and turned out, you know, turned out well. Yeah. Making the decision to, to leave the proverbial golden cage, as it were, when you've yeah. wanted to have that success. And then all of a sudden you're faced with an opportunity to, to choose to relinquish it. I cannot imagine that was a, a difficult one. What were the, when you made that decision, though, to give up the the, the business success that you were experiencing, um, what was your thought process around that? As in, was there were there moments of anxiety where I was like, "This is like financially, this is a huge decision that I'm having to make here, that we're having to make here as a family." What was that like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was all those things. I think there was a lot of anxiety and there was some fear, and uh, you know, it was taking a pretty big chance. Uh, you know, but I think that one of the things that I had, uh, I usually felt pretty comfortable betting on myself. Um, I think the other thing is, is that I knew that if I wasn't able to be successful in that, uh, I could always go back to the business. I think that there was, I, I knew I could go make a decent living, uh, in the recruiting and staffing world. Cause I knew the business really well. And so I think there was that little bit of, uh, you know, kind of a fallback possibility that if I went and tried to do it, and it didn't work out well that I could always go. It, it, they, 
that business, people always need good, you know, people who can sell and understand the business. And so you can always make money in that field if you understand, if you understand that field. And so I think part of it was that it was, I had a little bit of a safety net with that. Um, but again, I think that I usually felt pretty comfortable betting on myself. And I, I, I kind of felt like that if I could just be, if I could just become really good at it, then I could figure out a way to make a living at it. Uh, I didn't know what that meant at the time. Uh, but I did know that, uh, that I felt like if, uh, you know, if, I guess it was a little bit like, you know, I felt like if I wanted to do anything bad enough, then I could figure out a way to, to make it happen. And I, and I don't know if I still always believe that, but I certainly did then. Mm. But you've, you made this decision, you've gone through this, this decision-making process and your you studied, um, what was it, mental health counseling or counseling and mental yeah. health? Yeah, cl- clinical mental health counseling. Yeah. yeah, so I went and got my master's in uh, clinical mental health counseling, and that was a three-year program uh, that I went through. And during that time, we had to do a, a uh, basically like a mini internship and a regular internship. And I was lucky enough; I had known uh, the woman who founded our firm, Millennium Ho- uh, Millennium Counseling Center, uh, Ann Foster. I had met her along the way and uh, went to her and asked her what I needed to do to get into that field. How do I become somebody who can be in private practice? And she kind of, you know, gave me a game plan and said, look, you've got to go get your master's and then you've got to do an internship. And then when it was time for the internship, I showed up at her door and I was like, I'm ready. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, I'm not sure she was totally ready for me to be their mm-hmm. intern. So I had to interview with the staff and do all that kind of stuff. And luckily I got brought on, uh, as their intern and, uh, and then eventually was hired uh, after that, but it was, you know, I, I was fortunate in the fact that I was old enough at the time to know what I really wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in private practice. I knew I wanted to work with people one-on-one. I knew I wanted to work with people with drug and alcohol issues and also uh, mental health issues. And, uh, and this seemed like the kind of place that I could build some of the stuff that I ultimately ended up building there. Uh, it was a, a very kind of family environment. It was a, a firm of 10 or 12 people. Um, had been successful, had a great name in the field, uh, but also felt like I could have the freedom to do some of the other things that I wanted to do, which I ultimately ended up doing later on. Excellent. Um, so in terms of your the crossover from your, your previous professional lives, as it were, what were the, the biggest lessons that you were able to take forward from professional soccer and then from the business world into the mental health space? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I learned is that the uh, the most important part of a relationship between a therapist and the people they're seeing is that they, you know, people have to believe in you and they have to trust you. And so I think that that was similar to the other experiences I've had. You know, even even when I was in sales, I kind of prided myself on being a very ethical guy and I would be really honest and I would make sure that, you know, I wasn't selling something to somebody that I didn't think they really needed. And so I think that um, I had a lot of sincerity in my want and need to connect to people along the way, whether it was teammates or whether it was, uh, you know, working in the staffing world or whether it was as a therapist. And so I think the number one thing was that. And then secondarily, I think I had an understanding of business, which uh, when you go into private practice, you're ultimately, you know, trying to build your own business. You're, you're trying to, you know, kind of get busy. And um, so I think I felt comfortable with that piece. Uh, again, I believed in myself. So I felt comfortable kind of, you know, kind of going to somebody and say, listen, here, I think I can help you. 
and here's why I think I can help you. And that's kind of how the first session goes with a therapist is, you mm-hmm. know, you're kind of, they're feeling you out and, and seeing whether they think they can trust you and whether you're somebody who can help them through their issues. And so mm-hmm. I think because of all that, it really set me up well uh, to feel very comfortable once I got into that. Uh, I was also used to presenting and talking to, you know, big numbers of people and things like that. So one-on-one sessions and things like that didn't make me nervous. I felt pretty comfortable and, uh, and you know, kind of have my own style to it, which is pretty much I'm just a kind of a straightforward guy. And I, um, you know, I kind of am very honest with people and, uh, and you know, kind of try to help them see the right path so that they can get healthier. Mm. The you mentioned that you have quite a competitive nature. Was the competitive nature something that you held on to transitioning into the mental health space, or did it evolve into something else? Yeah, I think it evolved. Uh, you know, that's one of the things near the end before I decided to go back and and get my uh, my master's degree is that. I had noticed that I wasn't like making a sale wasn't quite as exciting as it was, you know, making, making money wasn't that exciting to me. And so that kind of competitive nature had gone away a little bit. And, uh, I knew I was going to make less money going into, you know, into the therapy world, but it just became the, the winning and things like that just became less important to me. Um, I had other outlets for that. I still played and, you know, and did some things, but from a standpoint of my career, I think that 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 competitiveness, I still had enough, I think, to to drive me, but I certainly had been pretty hyper competitive before that. And I think that uh, that that doesn't go very well in the therapy world. It's not, you know, it's a lot of helping people and and, you know, it's a helping profession. And so there's not it's not kind of as cutthroat and business, uh, you know, minded as much as it is in some other areas. And so uh, I think the transition was good. I think it was a good a good change for me. I had gone through some of my own personal development and kind of worked on some things as a human being and, and, and worked through, you know, some struggles that I had. And I think that that helped me, uh, you know, kind of get more comfortable with who I was and, uh, and the competitive, you know, competitiveness didn't need to drive me as much as it had previously. Fantastic. You mentioned that you'd gone through a couple of more personal experiences that helped you manage the transition, um, and kind of temper that competitive attitude. Would you mind expanding on those a little bit? What were they? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there had been a few different things. One is, is that I had several friends who had had some mental health and, and substance abuse issues. And then I, I actually was previously married and got divorced and, uh, and learned a lot about myself in that, uh, in that time too. And, you know, I was a hard charging guy. I, uh, I did everything all in and, uh, you know, and that included, going out and partying and, and that kind of stuff. And I think eventually I, uh, I realized, you know, I kind of looked at my life and asked myself, uh, one of the things that the ways that I think a lot is kind of in cost and benefit. Uh, you know, I think about what's the benefit and what's the cost. And so what I started to realize is there were certain parts of my life that, uh, that came with, uh, with more cost than the benefit I was getting out of it. And, you know, kind of partying was one of those things. And so I think that that whole, uh, experience of kind of, you know, reshaping who I wanted to be as a young guy in my, you know, in my, you know, late twenties, um, and wanting to go from kind of being a, a kid to a, to an adult and a, a responsible adult. Um, it, it, the, my career had allowed me to kind of continue to do things. I started, you know, I was either playing soccer or I was working professionally and I was making pretty good money at a young age. And, you know, it kind of allowed me to just, you know, kind of live the way I wanted to live without worrying too much about responsibilities and things like that. 
Um, so I think just at, uh, at that time, um, you know, early, early 30, you know, late twenties, early thirties, I just, I had to take a really hard look at myself and, uh, and think about how I wanted my life to look and, and who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to live that life. And so I think that, that, uh, you know, I, I think I was just really, for the first time, I was probably very honest with myself and, uh, and, and really took a, a hard look at those things that weren't easy to look at, you know, and, uh, and some failures, whether it was failure in a marriage, whether it was failure in business, whether it was failure as a, you know, what all the, all the things that I had failed at. And so I think at that point, I decided that I wanted to start living my life a little bit differently and, uh, and kind of work under a new set of rules. Um, which took a little time, you know, I met some really important people along the way. I had a therapist who was really helpful to me. Um, I had met some other people who were kind of in the volunteer world as well, who were very helpful. And so some people to help guide me. And then ultimately, I guess once I had gone on my own journey and kind of felt like I had figured it out, at least partially, um, that's when I started being more interested in trying to help other people. Um, you know, I think one of the things that gives me uh, and it, I don't know if advantage is the right word, but gives me a lot of insight is I've been through a lot of stuff in my life and I've, uh, you know, I've had, it hasn't always been easy. And, um, because of that, I can relate to a lot of people when they're kind of talking about their struggles and, and what they've gone through. It's easier for me to relate to that because I've gone through some similar things myself. And, you know, I had had some times where I was pretty depressed and, you know, so sometimes where I had kind of, uh, hit on all of these things that ultimately now I treat. And, um, so I think just having the personal experience of understanding kind of how those things looked, uh, really made it attractive because I saw my life get much better. I saw, I saw that my own personal life got way, way better and I was happier and life was just more enjoyable for me. And so part of what my impetus was is that I'm like, well, there's a way to do this. You know, you, you, you can't do it by yourself, but there's a way to do this when, and so just because life isn't going the way you want it to, doesn't mean it has to continue to go that way. Sure. Interesting. So this, this transition, you mentioned this one took a little bit more time. Um, when you started realizing that perhaps a, a change of direction, perhaps taking that kind of more active role in terms of creating what you wanted to be doing in the future. Um, was it kind of a like a not an easy journey per se, but a a constant journey, or was it more kind of two steps forward, one step back, as you kind of held on to bits from your past and trying to move into that future? Yeah, I think uh, you know I've always been a pretty lucky guy, and so I think that a lot of the the ways that uh, a lot of the things that could have gotten in the way um, it didn't. And, uh, so I think it wasn't, it certainly wasn't easy. And I, I've worked very hard to, you know, kind of, you know, get to get to do what I do. But at the end of the day, I met some key people at the right times and people were very helpful to me. And, you know, I think that, uh, if you look at my career within millennium uh, millennium counseling, you know, I started as an intern and, uh, ultimately then, you know, moved up. And a lot of that was just fortunate. You know, I, the, the woman who founded it, Ann Foster is an amazing woman and an amazing therapist. And she believed in me. And, you know, I met my future business partner, Oren Madison, who's another just amazing human being. And so I think, you know, a lot of this has to do with, you know, hard work, but there's also some luck involved, right? If you meet the right people at the right time, and if you're in the right mindset to, to, you know, kind of have a good relationship with those folks, then, it's certainly, um, you know, it's not all just uh, 
being, you know, it's not all just your own effort. Um, I think that other people have to come into play to make those things work. And at least till this point, um, you know, I've been very fortunate. And certainly my wife was a big piece of that as well. Um, she was very involved in that and is extremely supportive. And she's a really intelligent woman, probably the most intelligent woman I've ever met. And she, uh, you know, she's just, she understands life pretty well and knew how to kind of help me navigate through this, even in the times when, you know, I didn't necessarily know what to do. And so I think it was a team effort of a bunch of different people that kind of became involved in my life and, and really special, important people. And it's one of the reasons I believe so much in the human connection and why it's so important. Really like kind of harks back to that semi cliched expression of where um, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. If you're in the headspace yep. uh, to leverage <laughs> those new connections to uh, the benefit of both parties, then everyone can achieve far more than if you're trying to do something by yourself. Yeah. So Absolutely. when you're when you're building out your your private practice, then um, is there a specific group of individuals that you, on like a personal level, like to work with, or have you found that you're dealing with individuals kind of more from all works of life in terms of things like depression, anxiety, addiction, stuff like that? Yeah. So the, the primary, so one of the things that we did in my first couple of years there is we started a uh, intensive outpatient program, which is, uh, you know, there's different types of treatment. You can get residential treatment is where you go and you spend the night and you stay there for 30 days. And intensive outpatient is when you come and spend several hours, you know, with different people. And we built a very unique program that was focused around individual one-on-one work. Uh, most intensive outpatient programs are built around group therapy and we had a group therapy aspect to it, but we, uh, we, we had, you know, it was, it was more about one-on-one. We would, if somebody was going to go through our program, they would meet with, uh, for instance, they would meet with me every day of the week and then they would meet with another therapist several days a week and kind of work on the different things. So I think that the area, so that was something that certainly drove me is working in, in that intensive environment because you were taking, you were working with people who really, um, you know, maybe needed to go to residential treatment or, or were in a really bad spot in their life, um, but they really wanted to get better and they were willing to do the work and they're willing to, you know, kind of put in what it took. So I think that uh, the general core group of who I work with is mostly what they used to call dual, dual diagnosis and now they call, uh, call co-occurring disorders. And essentially it's somebody dealing with a couple of different things. So it may be, uh, an alcoholic who's dealing with depression or a drug addict who's bipolar or so it kind of marries those two sides, the substance abuse piece, as well as the mental health aspect of it. Uh, and so and, and that makes the fight a step especially difficult if you're if you're dealing with multiple issues and multiple challenges, then I think that that even makes a, a, a very difficult fight a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I, you know, the thing that I always tell my, my the folks that I work with is, is that I will work just as hard as you. However, I'm not going to work harder than you, but I will work just as hard as you. And so if you want to get this, there's a path, there's a way to get to where you want to be. Um, but it takes work. And I, I think that's one thing where the sports really helped me is that, um, I look at recovery and when I say recovery, I mean, across the board, it can be from depression. It can be from, you know, drugs and alcohol. It's just, you know, everybody, you know, anybody doing their own recovery work. But to me, it is a lot like fitness. And so I hear people who say, I want to get better, but I don't, but they don't really want to do the work, right? They don't want to put in. So if somebody came to a a personal trainer and said, Hey, I want to get better. I want to get bigger and faster and stronger. 
but above, by the way, I don't want to come work out with you every day, um, then they're not going to have much success. Uh, so it's a similar type thing. And I use that analogy with a lot of people that, you know, you, there's a path to, to, to mental health wellness and there's a path to recovery and there's a way to do it, but ultimately it's hard and it takes a lot of work and it's for most people, it's the hardest thing they ever do in their life. Uh, and, uh, but the advantage is if you can make it through that and come out the other side healthier and, uh, in a better place, then things after that don't ever feel as hard because you've already kind of gone through the hardest thing in your life. And, and I experienced that myself, you know, I think that, uh, that there's challenges feel difficult, but certainly I feel like the challenges that I, I had in the past were even more difficult than that. And so things don't seem as scary or as hard when you've already gone through some, you know, kind of pretty intense stuff that took a lot of work and, uh, and had some pain with it and some difficulty and, you know, certainly isn't easy. Mm. So in terms of the, the issues that people struggle with the most with this, with this acceptance that they're going to be going on a journey and this journey is going to require some pretty significant effort, um, and outlay from them, what is some of the things that people tend to struggle with the most? Yeah, I think the the hardest thing is, is that they just, you know, they they don't necessarily believe that they can get better. You know, they've been living a certain way for a certain amount of time in their life and life has been hard. And so and that's one of the keys to when I first start working with somebody is I, I will tell them, I say, listen, you just have to trust me. You have to trust me that your life will get better if you do these things. And, and so what I usually ask people is I say, you know, give me two weeks, give me 30 days, you know, and if your life isn't better, uh, you do the work, you promise to do all the work and I'll promise to work hard with you. And, uh, and then we'll reevaluate, we'll reevaluate in several weeks or a month and see if life has gotten better. And if they genuinely do the work, if they put in the effort, um, I'm somebody who has people do homework when they're not with me and, you know, kind of work on things throughout the week and in our intensive program. And, you know, I'm seeing them every day and being able to see that. So I think that's the hardest thing probably is trusting that there actually is a path and trusting that there's a way out. Uh, And this is before the people start to create their own personal historical data before they start to see it, then they have to kind of trust. And that's why, as I mentioned before, that, that, you know, being, trying to be as trustworthy as I can and not judgmental. And, uh, you know, it has to be a part of it because if they don't trust that what I'm telling them is reality, then they're not going to put in the work. Right. And, uh, so they have to believe that there's an end game and that life is going to get better. And I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about, you know, recovery work. And so I think people see that they, uh, they figure, well, worst case scenario is this guy's wrong. Then I've wasted a couple of weeks, but you know, for the most part, when people do the work, people get better. That's the reality is that when people put in the work, they will get better uh, as long as they, you know, have a little bit of guidance and, and are willing to have some acceptance as far as what it takes to, to do the work. Do you think that your sales skills and your sales experience has helped you with kind of conveying that value proposition as it were? It's like, look, this is something that is going to work. This is a solution for you. This is what you need to do. Yeah, I think that probably helps, but I, I think it's even more so that that I, I'm not really selling something. I'm talking about something that I fully believe in, right? Like, so I think that makes it a lot easier. Anytime you're passionate about what you're trying to convey, it makes it a lot easier for other people to believe that and trust you, right? And so I think the bigger part of that is not so much maybe the sales experience, but my own personal experiences where I, you know, I can tell somebody that, look, this is what happens and I know I'm telling them the truth, right? 
I know that what I'm saying that life gets better. And, uh, and I also know, you know, and I believe this hundred percent that if somebody's willing to put in the work to try to get healthier from a mental health standpoint, then there's a way to do that and you can make it through. Uh, so I think that it's, it's not only, yeah, sure. I'm sure that the sales part has something to do with it because I, you know, you have to, you, you have to get people to believe in what you're saying, but it's really easy when what you're trying to get them to believe in is something that's real and it's true and it's, uh, and it's verified. And, and, and I know it personally, right. I know it from my own personal experience that, uh, so I don't have to talk about what ifs and this might work and maybe this happens. And I don't have to do any of that because I know that if they, you know, if they kind of, if they put in their work and are willing to be honest with themselves and accept, you know, kind of that they have to change their lifestyle a little bit and things like that, then I know their life will get better. And then it just, then it just depends on what the levels are and, uh, you know, how much better can life get? The sky's the limit, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned that you like to give your, um, your patients as it were, um, homework. What sort of homework do you give them? Yeah, I think a lot of, uh, you know, there's, one of the things that I've noticed about human beings is there's kind of these three things that we have. We've got feelings, we've got thoughts, and we've got actions, right? And I, the way that I define those things is uh, feelings just kind of come and go, and, and they're, they're not really thought out. You just feel scared or you feel happy or you feel down. Thoughts are something that you can, you can kind of intentionally think about. If I want to think about um, you know, if I want to think about the benefits of not drinking anymore, I can think about that. And then the actions are just whatever I do, you know, to the simple point of if I show up for an appointment, that's an action. And I think as human beings, we, although all feelings are valid, they're not all true. They're not all, they're not all based in fact. And so if I'm walking down the street and there's a guy walking towards me and I'm afraid, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm in danger. Right. And so I think that we pay too much attention. Well, I, you need to pay attention to your feelings and they're important and they're valid. But when we, when we use them as the impetus for us making decisions on our actions, then sometimes that can be dangerous. And so a lot of the homework that I give to people is kind of uh, about the perspective, the way you look at things, how you process thoughts, um, you know, and then there's some other more tangible things like planning your day and, you know, kind of having intention every day when you wake up, what's that going to look like? Uh, and then certainly relationships with other people, you know, that's a big thing that gets uh, affected by, you know, any type of mental health issues. Um, so a lot of it about communication and setting boundaries and learning to be honest and open and transparent. So those are the types of things where, you know, essentially when people leave, I say, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to work on this and you're going to work on that. And so then that's where the real growth happens. It's not in the hour that they're sitting talking to me. It's when they take the things that we talk about and that they've understood and they've learned and they put them into practice in their own life uh, because that creates what I said before. It creates personal historical data. They get to see it, it in action. They try something new and it actually has a, a good result. And because of that, uh, then they're encouraged to continue that momentum and keep doing that work. And then it makes it easier and easier to continue to work with somebody. Um, that's why doing the work, when I say doing the work, which I know I've said many times, it's, it's all encompassing. It's, it's being open and honest when we're talking. It's showing up to our appointments. It's following up on things that we talk about. You know, it is. This is hard work. It's a hard job to, to be in recovery, to get better, to get healthier. It's really difficult work. 
But the upside of it is, I, I talked before about cost and benefit. There's a high cost to this. It's hard, but the benefit is astronomical. And so if you can see that, if you can recognize how much more benefit than you have than cost, then it becomes easier as you go along and, and it's easier to kind of buy into things and, and try things and, and, you know, use these experiences in their own personal lives to, to get better. Awesome. Awesome. So in terms of the, the things that people struggle with, with the work when they're, when they're starting to create these, these new habits, these new routines that are going to build that, um, that sense of momentum and then start feeding into that kind of that positive feedback loop whereby you start creating this personal historical data, this personal historical data kind of validates what you're doing. So you want to do more of it. What are some of the pitfalls that people have in that process? Yeah, I, I would say mostly it's, it's kind of learned uh, self-talk, um, you know, kind of shame and guilt and, you know, negativity. And, and a lot of this has been, it's, it's, it goes back to what we just talked about when you're, if, if your life is such that you're not having much success and you're struggling with relationships and you're struggling with your, your profession or whatever, then there's a lot of negativity that's wrapped up into that. And, you know, and they play off of each other. If you're depressed, and you're trying to, you know, kind of do all these things, then it's harder to do. It's harder to have good relationships. It's harder to, to, to be successful in your job. And so what happens is, is then that starts to also create some personal historical data, but it's negative. And so I think getting past that, uh, just starting to believe in themselves and believe that actually just because I feel this certain way, just because I think that I can't do something doesn't mean that I can't, or just because I think that these other people think something of me doesn't mean that they really do. And so I think that's the most difficult part is getting past that kind of cycle of negativity of, of negative self-talk. And it's, you know, I think some people think that it's, it's just a mindset. It's not, it's real. You know, it's real when you're caught up in, in substance abuse or depression or anxiety or any of those things, that negative messaging that you're getting internally is absolutely real. And, uh, and so, and it's not the fault of the person. It's not because they did something wrong or because they didn't work hard enough. It's just, it's part of the diagnosis of what people are dealing with. And, uh, so learning to kind of move away from that and, uh, and, and just not pay attention to it or not believe it, I guess, is the key thing. Uh, and I think that's the hardest thing. And so I think that, again, I believe so much in momentum and negative momentum leads you into more negativity and positive momentum leads you more into positivity. And I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that if you just think positive, everything's going to be great. That's not, it's not as simple as that, but you, you need to start creating some things in your own life that give you that feedback. And, you know, and so you start to believe in it yourself and then it makes it much easier. And, and that's hard to do, especially in the beginning. Um, I equate it to like a barge going down the river in the wrong direction. And, and then you figure out, wait a minute, I've got to go the other way, right? I, I'm going the wrong direction. And so, you know, first you have to stop going in the wrong direction, right? Then you have to turn the barge around and you have to get facing in the right direction. And then you have to get going in the right direction again. And part of that is making up some of the ground that you lost when you were going in the wrong direction. And so it's a process and it takes time and it's, it's not easy. But as soon as you recognize, the key is, as soon as you recognize your barge is going in the wrong direction, then you can start to make changes. But if you don't realize you're going in the wrong direction or you're not able to be honest with yourself to understand that, then it makes it much more difficult to uh, impossible really to try to turn around and go in the other direction. But once you get that understanding and you have somebody who can help you guide you back in the right direction, then 
that's when you start to see people getting past that success or past that, you know, the negativity and the failure and moving towards success and, and ultimately being content and happy and all those things that we all look for. Mm. If someone was listening to this and they found that they're in, in that headspace where they know something is up, they know that their barge is going the wrong way. They know they're going upstream when they should be going downstream, but they have no idea about what the first step would be in terms of changing that orientation and starting to build these positive loops as opposed to being stuck in the negative spiral. What would be something that they could do? Yeah, I mean, I think a big piece of that is is connection to other people. I think that it's really hard to make that understanding and analysis when you're in the middle of it, right? You might know that something's not completely right, but it to, to be able to work through that internally by yourself is really difficult. And so it doesn't mean that it has to be a professional or a therapist or something like that. There's a lot of ways to do it, but I think you need to find somebody that you know and that you trust and that you believe, you know, kind of somebody that you might look up to, somebody that you think has a pretty, you know, seems to have life figured out or, or at least. Uh, value, uh, certainly value in, you know, in, in professionals that do this all the time, but it doesn't have to be that. And, you know, from a substance abuse standpoint, there's a lot of support groups. There's, you know, there's the 12 step and there's, uh, you know, smart recovery and there's, you know, different things that you can, can get into. Uh, but if it's on the mental health side, then, you know, it's that you have to connect to another human being because you can't do this by yourself. That's what we know. What we know as professionals is this is not something you can do by yourself, regardless of what the issue is. And so you have to, that's where I said earlier, acceptance. You have to accept that you probably just can't will your way through this. Um, just like you can't will yourself to getting fit and in shape. You, you can do the work, which will get you in shape, but just wanting really badly to be in shape isn't going to get you fit, right? You, you, have, to, you have to take that will and then you have to, combine it with the, uh, you know, with it, with the, the, the work that goes into it. And that's kind of how you seek success. Yeah. Taking the action and actually admitting to yourself that maybe you're not the most important person in the universe and perhaps you could benefit from somebody else's help and experience. <laughs> yeah. And we all can, right? I mean, we yeah. all can, it doesn't, I don't care what you do for a living, how successful you've been in your life. It doesn't matter all of us can benefit from other people and their insights and their, you know, their ability to kind of help us talk through things and work through things. And that's the, probably the biggest mistake I see people make is that they just want, they want so badly to prove that they can get healthier, that they try to do it without any guidance and without any help and without any support. And they try to do it solely on their own. And, and uh, that's a really difficult task. It, it can happen, but you know, I'm an odds guy. I, I try to give you the best odds possible and the difficulty of getting healthy, if you're dealing with a mental health issue or with a substance abuse issue, the odds are, are, aren't great, right? And so I believe in helping your odds. And, and the way you help your odds is connect to other people, talk out, you know, be open, be honest, and, and ultimately uh, working with, you know, a therapist or even just, a, you know, some people work with somebody in their church or, or whatever um, for some guidance. And, uh, and it increases your odds of getting healthier. And so I always we'll take the higher odds if I, if there's some way to do that. Mm. Nice. Agreed 100%. I mean, that for me as a young guy, so I'm in that kind of transition period with whereby I'm kind of starting to look at facets of my life that maybe aren't quite where I would like them to be and then being able to assess what needs to change, what needs to stay, so on and so forth. I think that 
admission that, okay, maybe now is a time where I need to get some help. Maybe I do need to start forming these connections because they're going to be something that is going to benefit me on a slightly more selfish level, but then also everyone else with whatever I end up doing further down the line. It's been an interesting transition for for me to manage on a on a personal level. But again, it's the positive feedback that you get from it is something that really is I'm finding is really helping kind of drive that change, allow that change to to continue. Um, you mentioned that with Millennium, you now there's a sports division that you've started up relatively recently. So is that to do with is that is that focused on how you like optimizing the athlete's mental health in terms of their performance on the field or is it more to do with helping them kind of manage that transition from professional sports into the the proverbial real world as it were yeah i think that our the way you know certainly we know all the little things that you can do to increase your you know your effectiveness there's you know you can do mental imagery and you know there's all sorts of things you can do kind of more from a sports psychologist standpoint all of it very valuable and all of it can be very helpful I think our 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 area that we concentrate a little bit more on is not so much the the enhancement of performance but it is to deal with you know kind of mental health issues that come up as athletes and uh you know as a former athlete myself and then one of the other women who works with us was a division one volleyball player and um and so you know there's a it, it doesn't matter what the thing is whether it's sports or 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 uh you know band or whatever they're all unique in their own ways and uh so it's very helpful i think to understand the unique pressures and and problems that come with athletics and to work with those athletes because we we understand that you know like what it's like to have the school believe you owe them something because you're on scholarship or um, or feel like you can't tell the coach that you're struggling because you're afraid you're going to lose playing time or you know all of those things so we definitely are more uh, we we concentrate more on the mental health aspect than we do on the performance aspect but ultimately it does the same thing right if you have somebody who's mental health issues are getting in the way and they're not performing at their general level, they're performing below where they could be as an athlete, then if they can work through those mental health issues, then they are going to perform higher. They're going to do better. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of eating disorders and anxiety and, you know, there's a lot of things that come with athletes. And, and part of it is, is this idea that you should just be able to be strong enough right? That if you're, if you're really a good enough athlete, then you should just, you should be strong enough to work through it. And, uh, and again, it goes back to that. We need help with this stuff. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, you, you can't, you can't just do it, but just because you want to do it, you've got to, you've got to find the right path and then you've got to do the work. Do you find that there are things that athletes tend to struggle with more than, um, regular folks as it were? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is, is, kind of perfectionism you know i think that that's that's definitely one of them we there's there's this belief that it's never good enough right nothing is ever good enough and so uh and i also think athletes are extremely self-critical of themselves you know they're most athletes are even the ones who are confident and feel good about themselves they're their own biggest critic right they're, they they will criticize themselves more than anybody else so i think those are a couple of them i think you know trying to kind of be perfect with everything um, the belief that, you know, that if you were doing it right, then you wouldn't make any mistakes. Um, and that, that you, you know, that I guess this idea that if you do everything right, you're going to win all the time. And sometimes you can do everything right and just come up against somebody who's doing it a little bit better that day. And, uh, and it, it 
you, you're not going to win. And so if you always blame yourself for failures and losses and things like that, then sometimes that's unfair and uh, can lead to, you know, decreased motivation, increased depression, uh, increased anxiety, um, you know, decreased self-esteem. So I think that those are all the things that we see in athletes um, and just a lot of pressure. They feel a lot of pressure. Um, they, they feel like the world is on their shoulders and that they've got to, you know, they've got to be the ones to carry them out. And, uh, and we try to help them with understanding that that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, you can, uh, you just have to work through these things so you can enjoy, you know, being an athlete. That's why most people do it is because they enjoy it and they love the sport. So we try to help them get back to, you know, um, stop thinking and just play. <laughs> yeah. Get out of your own head and enjoy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Excellent. So going, circling back to um, the work that you're doing with Millennium Counseling, with the, the other work that you do outside of the sports division, is there a process that you would take people through? So instead, not the intensive outpatient. Um, if someone was kind of coming to you on a more... Um, like kind of like a, a therapist relationship would be, is there like a specific process that you would lead people through? So developing that, um, those, pos- those initial positive habits, what would then come after that? What does the the journey kind of look like from the top down? Yeah, I think that, uh, well, you know, obviously we're trying to build, you know, positive habits and thought processes, but I think that then we start getting into some deeper things for, you know, Certainly there's people who have experienced trauma in their life and might need to do some deeper trauma work and things like that. There's a, a, a method called EMDR, which is amazingly uh, successful with PTSD and things like that. So it really depends on the person and what the issues that they're dealing with. But I think that in the beginning, what you're trying to do is, is stop the negative. You're trying to stop the bleeding, right? You're trying, to, you're trying to stop all the negative stuff from coming. And then Beyond that, I would say, uh, and this is maybe sounds a little cheesy to use this word, but it's more about enlightenment and, and personal growth and, and really, you know, becoming part of it is just stopping moving in the wrong direction. But then after time, what you're doing is, you know, most people don't realize where they could go. They don't even believe it to be possible. They don't think they could be that, you know, happy or that, you know, effective in communicating or whatever the things you're working on or, or, and they don't even like their idea when they first come in, they, they don't know how much of a change there can be. And so I think once you start getting some of the negativity out of the way and, and kind of stop the, you know, the issues that are arising from it, then you can start working on, you know, the, the word that I love the most is just content. Like, I think if people can work towards being content, then that's the, you know, there's lots of times when you're happy and unhappy, but if you're content, then to me, that is the ultimate goal is where you're just, you're, you're fine, right? You're, you're, you're good. It's all good. <laughs> and, uh, so I think that's probably the secondary process is, is we go from initially, uh, you know, crisis management, and then we go into healthy habits and, and perspective. And then we go into kind of really true personal growth and, and uh, you know, like I said, enlightenment. And I don't mean that in a religious way. I mean, in a way that, you know, kind of recognizing things that you didn't even realize you could do or ways you could feel or perspectives that you could take on things. Uh, I think perspective is such an important thing. I think that learning how to change your perspective and change the angle on things and how you look at things is, uh, is critical for people to really have long-term success 
when it comes to being healthy and, and in the mental health area or substance abuse, you know, you, you start to see that. And it just, uh, you can realize that it, life can be much different than you ever thought possible. Mm, agreed. Now, I think we're, we're starting to bump up against the hour here. So I think this is a, the perfect time to, to ask my final question. Um, if there was someone who was listening to this right now and they're in a particularly tough spot, so maybe they're feeling particularly depressed or anxious, maybe they're dealing with a transition of some sort, what would be the one thing that you recommend that they do right now that would help them move through that? Yeah, I, I would probably say, you know, from a tangible standpoint, so that, that you know, I, w- I would have them reach out. So first of all, I would have them reach out to somebody. And again, whether it's somebody that they trust or, or you know, a professional, um, I think it's important to connect with somebody else. But beyond that, from more of a tangible aspect, I think that you, you kind of need to, to, to get into some routines within your life that are, are healthy. And if you look at most decisions, you can decide whether it's healthy or unhealthy, right? You, you, you want to get up at eight o'clock and now it, you decide I can either sleep till 10 or I can get up at eight. You, you can know one's a healthier path and one's an un- unhealthier path, right? And so I think just learning to ask yourself the question, most of the time when we ask ourselves the question, what's the better thing for me to do right now? What's the healthier action for me to take? We know the answer. The problem is we don't ask the question. We don't ask ourselves that question. You're laying there at eight o'clock and you might want to, you're feeling depressed. So you might want to lay there till 10. And, uh, and those are the times when you really have to work counterintuitively and, and work against what your feelings are telling you and, and kind of get to your thoughts and your actions and try to, you know, pick the healthy road. Now, listen, I make it sound easy. It's not when you're in those places, then it's a very difficult thing to do, but the, but to do that, first, you have to know that that's what you want to do. You have to decide that, look, this is what I'm looking for. I want to ask myself throughout the day. There's a saying that goes in the recovery world, and it, it's, uh, it's just do the next right thing, right? And, you know, just to, you pick the next right thing and you do it. And so that's what I would say to somebody who's really struggling is, is pick, pick the next right thing. And if that means getting out of bed that morning, it means taking a shower, it means calling back the people that called them, whatever it is. You just kind of take it one little piece at a time. Don't try to climb the whole mountain. Just take little piece by little piece and just ask yourself the question, what's the next right thing for me to do? What's the next healthiest thing that I can do in my life? And if you start to turn that around a little bit, um, then, and now obviously if there's, you know, deeper issues there and things like that, then it's not that simple, but that's a good place to start. Excellent. I think that is the perfect place to finish. Thank you ever so much for this, Derek. This has been a a fascinating conversation. I'm sure there is a huge amount of value that people will be able to take and apply to their own lives um, within it. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, it seems like you've done a lot of really interesting things and share a lot of good information with the world and are doing some pretty special things. So I appreciate uh, you and what you do. And I appreciate you having me on and being a part of this. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. Thank you for your comments and thank you everyone for listening. That was Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.